Are you tired of being sheep? Well, so is he. Get a friend, get informed, and get involved. It's We Are Not Cattle Radio. Well, thank you for joining us. It is We Are Not Cattle Radio. My name is Jake Counts, coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia. And I do have with me on the line Robert Platchorn from the Silver Tour. And just to give you guys um, some background of who Robert is, Robert is the author of The Black Tuna Diaries and America's longest in prison nonviolent marijuana offender. He spent 30 years in prison. Uh, he was raised on the South Side in, in, or excuse me, on South Street in downtown Philadelphia. Um, acting inhibitions earned him a role in a successful off-Broadway play while he was still in high school, and he was named the lead and became one of America's most famous pitchmen. And the the late Billy Mays said he is a legend in the pitch business. Now, um, at 24, he moved to London and found the Dynamic Reading Institute, starting in renting classrooms and. Within three years, there are 14 schools in three countries, and he began teaching classes at Oxford, Cambridge, London University, and the House of Lords. He since moved back to Miami in uh, 1975, attended law school there, and in Miami in the 70s was the center of the Colombian pot trade, and Robert turned his business acumen into a mission of smuggling um, Colombian pot, Attorney General Griffin Bell named Robert's organization the Black Tuna Gang and allegedly were responsible for most of the marijuana traffic on the Florida coast. In 1979, a year after quitting the smuggling business, he was indicted and convicted for 64 years in federal prison and was released in 2008 after serving a 30-year term in 11 different prisons. Robert now lives in Florida and works for medicinal marijuana trying to collect signatures on the Florida ballot and expand people's awareness of through organizations like Normal and PUFMM and he's appended he's appeared at universities, concerts, expos, you name it. His uh, website is blacktunadiaries.com and um once again Robert, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon to tell your story and to um enlighten the people on medicinal cannabis. Thanks for having me on. Well, um, just to get into, um, not to, you know, rehash everything, but if you could expand on what I just said about um, how you got involved in the smuggling business, and then what came about from from your um, from your dealings in the industry, so to speak. Um, like most people, I got involved in the smuggling business by accident. Okay. I was traveling on the road as a pitchman and working at the big state fairs and uh, home shows and on the boardwalk. And uh, one of the people I worked with uh, off-season was driving loads for a Miami smuggler. Mm-hmm. And uh, he asked me if I could help him sell some. Mm-hmm. And it went from there uh, up to distributing and eventually... Uh, I became a smuggler. The actual story is right in the first chapter of my book, mm-hmm. Black Tuna Diaries. Great. Uh, I was selling for a distributor, 
mm-hmm. invited me to Columbia to meet his connection. And, mm-hmm. uh, I never did get to meet his connection, but if you're in Columbia, you're likely to meet one anyway, or you were back in those days. Sure, a, uh, It's a very different world, and uh, Columbia would be the last place you'd want to go to try and meet a connection. Mm-hmm. So after, you know, what was it like um, in your mind being sentenced to, to 64 years for, for a nonviolent offense? The same thing it would be in anybody else's mind. A hell of a tragedy. Yeah, absolutely. And a very big surprise. Uh, up until that time, generally, first offense, marijuana smuggling, would bring a three to five year sentence. Mm-hmm. And back in those days when there was parole, that meant normally you'd serve 18 months to two years. Mm-hmm. And that's what you thought you were risking when you went into the smuggling business. Okay. But we were the first ones that were charged with uh, the Kingpin statute, 848, and uh, RICO. Racketeering mm-hmm. and corrupt influence. Okay. Neither one of those charges had ever been used uh, in conjunction with a marijuana prosecution, mm-hmm. and that was the last thing anyone was expecting. So it was a it was a circus. Yeah. The reason was it was the first joint effort, and no pun intended, mm-hmm. uh, between DEA and FBI. At the time. Uh, the attorney general was thinking of closing down the DEA because they knew by then that the drug war was a failure. Sure. And uh, the DEA was, to a large extent, a corrupt agency, as they had been several times in their history. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it started as a Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs, and mm-hmm. uh, that that agency was shut down for corruption. It was reborn as the DEA. Mm-hmm. And when it was, in order to try and prevent corruption, uh, the DEA was an investigative agency and had no arrest powers. Okay. So they would have to partner with another agency. Uh, for a long time down in Miami, it was the Coast Guard uh, they would partner with or the local police mm-hmm. uh, who actually made the arrests. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it was the end of the Cold War, sure. and the FBI wasn't out chasing make-believe communists anymore, as they had for many years. Right. Uh, and their emphasis at the time was to stop uh, the stealing of business secrets. Now, that's not terribly sexy. Right. So they were really looking for a, another reason for their existence. Mm-hmm. And they partnered with the DEA in something called Operation Banco. Okay. It was the first joint effort. And the idea was to trace the flow of funds back to Colombia. Okay. And uh, stop it at both ends. At the time, the Federal Reserve Bank in Miami uh, had more money than all the other Federal Reserve Banks put together because of the amount of cash that was flowing through. Mm-hmm. Miami was the smuggling hub of the country. Sure. And when they located the bankers, which wasn't all that hard to do, mm-hmm. they found that almost all of them uh, were working in CIA operations. Okay. And consequently, 
they were kind of hard to bust. Uh, the biggest banker of all, uh, who was someone that we were doing business with, mm-hmm. ended up getting a year's suspended sentence on some very light money laundering charge. Although he was uh, sending through millions and millions of dollars every week. It was one of the biggest banks in the world. And they had a separate entrance just for smugglers. Huh. You'd go to the back door and you had a secret ring on the bell and then a secret knock on the door. And then they'd lead you into a vault that was used for nothing but dark money. Wow. So it's literally like something out of a movie. You have the magic knock, and then you get taken in through the back back entrance. Yeah, by the bank manager. Wow. And uh, you'd get into this vault, and there was a long conference table mm-hmm. with maybe ten tellers at the table. And they would never look up. They weren't supposed to look at you as if, you know, as if they couldn't see you. But, of course, that's ridiculous. <laughs> They'd never look up. Okay. And you'd open your uh, Samsonite. Of course, you could put a million bucks in a Samsonite. Okay. And uh, that that was the smuggler's luggage. Okay. And, you, and you'd put your Samsonites on the table, and, and the bank manager would distribute the money to the tellers. And they would sit there each with a pile in front of them mm-hmm. and count the money. And as they counted the money, every now and then they'd spot a counterfeit, even though they were doing it so fast it looked like a machine. Right. They'd spot a piece of counterfeit and they'd throw it out in the middle of the table. Hmm. And at the end of the count-up, they'd count how much counterfeit they found in all this money. Right. Because it all started down on the street. Mm-hmm. You know, and it went up to a distributor, and then it went up to a wholesaler, and then it went up to a smuggler. Sure. <laughs> and and then you'd have to replace that amount of money. It probably averaged somewhere close to a thousand bucks out of every million. Mm-hmm. And uh, you'd replace the the counterfeit with good, and uh, that would be your deposit. And next thing you know, it would pop up in Colombia somewhere. Huh. So um, that, that was the bad old days. And anybody uh, who's seen my movie, Square Grouper, you know, right. it's been on Showtime for quite a while. Mm-hmm. And it's on Netflix and iTunes. And, uh, there's, you know, the whole story's there of, of the smuggling era. Wow. So, so after you, after you get out of, after you get out of prison, what compelled you to, to go the um, the activist route of trying to trying to enlighten people on the on the benefits of of cannabis, did that leave just such a sour taste in your mouth that you wanted to show the system that that what they did was was um, a, a complete overreach? When I came out, uh, I knew I wanted to do something to prevent what happened to me from happening to other people. Okay. Uh, it wasn't a fully developed thought. Uh, I spent a year uh, working as a pitchman and, and selling nonstick frying pans in uh, big box stores uh, to make a living while I finished my memoir, Black Tuna Diaries. Okay. Once the book was ready, I went out on the road uh, to normal conventions and Hemp Fest and Hemp Stalk and uh, the Cannabis Cups, 
doing book signings and, and speaking engagements. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had an epiphany, a for real epiphany. Hmm. I was at uh, Hempfest. Okay. And, you know, they get about a quarter of a million people over a weekend. Sure. And I was up on the main stage. I had at least 2,000 people in front of me. And I was telling stories, smuggling stories and prison stories and uh, stories about my years in England uh, when I started the first speed reading schools in London and and in Holland and Amsterdam and Germany. Uh, and, And... Everybody was laughing, having a good time, clapping. I was telling some pretty funny prison stories and some stories about the jungles up in Columbia from my book. And, of course, the idea was to get them as interested as possible Mm -hmm. and sell as many Black Tuna Diaries as possible. Sure. And I looked out at the crowd, and that's when it hit me that really – Aside from selling books, and, and you know, that's a, a narrow uh, niche in life, that I wasn't doing any good mm-hmm. because I was preaching to the choir. Sure. And I looked out there, and I just stopped dead, thought for a minute, and I told the whole audience, I said, I don't know why I'm wasting my time here. Huh. And they stuck at me like I was nuts. Right. I said, every one of you are on my side. I said, but how many of you go out there and talk to people who aren't on our side? Mm-hmm. Because that's what we lack right. to get legalization. We lack education. Absolutely. There is no organization that reaches out to the public. Normal doesn't do it. They're a chapter organization. They're Correct. the interest is setting up chapters and hoping that somebody in the chapter will do something. Correct. Uh, The other organizations, ASA, MPP, MAP, Mm -hmm. they do some very good legal work. Uh, They do some excellent lobbying, Mm -hmm. but none of them reach out to the public. Okay. And I realize I'm a pitchman. If I can't do it, nobody can. (laughs) And, you know, our movement really hasn't had many good public figures. That's right. Many good spokesmen. Probably the best of the lot may have been Jack or Lars. Mm-hmm. But even he functioned within the marijuana community for the most part. Every now and then he did some good in the, in the media mm-hmm. and, and got some attention from the public. And he educated a lot of people uh, in the movement so they could go out and do something. Sure. But there was no face and voice uh, out there reaching for the public. Mm -hmm. And I took a few months to look at it and try to figure out what I could do because I came out of prison dead broke and was making a living from my book, but not more than that. Uh, I had a lot of people to pay back. I was very fortunate. Mm -hmm. When I came out of prison, I had friends. uh, I had family. Generally, people who've been in prison come out, have nothing, and can do nothing. Right. Uh, I was offered writing jobs immediately by High Times. I wrote for the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm I'm not a smuggler who became a writer, 
I was a writer back from when I was in high school. I was writing for radio, mm-hmm. and in college I wrote for television, and, and uh, I probably wrote almost half of the original infomercials that ever appeared on TV. Um, I was making infomercials before they called them infomercials. <laughs> in any case, uh, I was looking for a niche where I could make an impression. Sure. And and do some some serious good. And when Prop 19 went down the drain in California, mm-hmm. I took a look at the exit polls, and it became clear that there was only one reason that 19 failed. Lack of education. That was senior vote. Yeah. It had nothing to do with growers. Mm-hmm. It had nothing to do with dispensaries. Uh, there weren't enough of those people to make a difference, and most of them don't vote anyway. And, and when you're talking about the growers defeating Prop 19, which a lot of Californians are convinced happened, mm-hmm. even if there were enough growers, most of them are hideouts. They don't vote. Right. So I took a look, and, and it became clear. Seniors voted 65% against. Okay. And I found that a little hard to understand. Because that's my generation. Right. We virtually invented marijuana, as it's known today. Mm-hmm. We're the ones who made it popular. Uh, we gave America a volunteer army. Uh, we were Woodstock. Right. And then I realized that nobody was talking to seniors in California except the beer lobby. Gee, I wonder what they were going to talk about. Well... It didn't even make any sense, but it worked. Right. What they would say is, isn't it bad enough that we have drunks on the road? Mm-hmm. Do we need stoners on the road, too? Right. And it's not hard to uh, scare seniors, mm-hmm. even seniors who really know better. Right. But at that time, you know, that's, what, three years ago, mm-hmm. uh, the studies on, on driving under the influence of cannabis weren't available, and and there wasn't much information to refute what they were saying. Sure. It's all come, you know, it's come along since, Mm -hmm. but at that time there wasn't, and there was nobody even trying to. Okay. And uh, you don't have to be too bright to figure out that seniors vote. They vote in every election, Mm -hmm. and in by-elections, which uh, the California election was a by-election, Yeah. they make up the bulk of the vote. Hmm. Uh, most people don't vote in by-elections, but pe- but seniors do. Sure. And I did a little more research, and I realized even in California, where they've had medical marijuana for so long, mm-hmm. uh, seniors knew nothing about it beyond that it would give you an appetite if you were on chemo. Right. Or it might help your glaucoma. Right. For the most part, uh, they bought into the uh, right-wing talk show, uh, you know, misinformation that medical marijuana was just an excuse for kids to get a card and get high. Exactly. So even to this day, uh, I get more requests from California for Silver Tour or to run my television show mm-hmm. uh, than I do from any place else, even though California's had medical the longest. Right. So, 
I was determined to do something, and and the first thing was to put on live shows, right? Not seminars, not classes, not panel discussions. Nothing will put you to sleep faster or confuse you more than a panel discussion. <laughs> Amen to that. And no senior who isn't already interested in marijuana is ever going to come to a seminar. Mm-hmm. But a free show is a different story. Sure. And I know how to put on shows. Mm-hmm. Sure. Plus, all my shows featured a free buffet. You got to attract them somehow, and right? That's something very attractive to seniors. Sure. And they'd come in and they'd hear a doctor up on stage and they'd meet, they'd see patients up on stage talking about their own experiences. They'd hear nurses talking about how they've used it in hospice and how they treat with cannabis. And then they'd hear a lawyer talk about the legal situation and how to change it. And the whole show never takes more than an hour, hour and 10 minutes because that's really the length of somebody's attention span. Sure. Mm-hmm. And of course, we make them wait for the buffet till the end. <laughs> uh, the shows were very successful right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of our earliest shows was featured on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Great. Uh, CNN Money did a, a TV feature that was picked up by every major network. Uh, Wall Street Journal also did a video piece that uh, to this day is still popular on their website. There's hardly a major media. Newsweek did a piece that's still up there on uh, what's their website? Uh, uh, Daily Beast. Yeah, yeah. They've got a like a 20, 25-minute feature up there mm-hmm. and and some great, great investigative reporting going all the way back to the Black Tuna days. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they spoke to some of the agents from the original case who finally admitted that it wasn't that big and there was no violence. And right. they just had to make a big deal out of it in order to stay in business. Right, in order to keep their jobs and to keep that yeah. part of the government running. Yeah. Yeah. And... I'll tell you how how good the show worked. Uh, we did one in a big reform synagogue mm-hmm. for 200 people, all strangers to marijuana. Right. This was on a Sunday afternoon. At the end of the show, I put two phone numbers up on the uh, screen in the front. Mm-hmm. And I said, these are two committee heads in Tallahassee in the Florida legislature. Mm-hmm. They're blocking our medical marijuana bill. I'd like you all to call them on Tuesday between 9 and 11 a.m. Now, 200 people in the audience, they've got two days to come out from under the ether, but each of those numbers logged over 190 calls. Wow. You know, they have to log them for record. Sure, sure, sure. So we back-checked, and, and I realized that no matter how many live shows I could put on, And realistically, it takes about six weeks to set it up, Mm -hmm. you know, get a time that's convenient for the doctors and patients and uh, do the advertising to fill the seats. And it costs about 1500 bucks to do a show locally Mm -hmm. and a lot more if we have to go out of town. Right. And it, at best, you're you're reaching 100 to 200 people at a time mm-hmm. uh, once every month or six weeks. 
not really good for numbers. Right. So I went back to what I knew best. I know how to make infomercials. I know how to make TV shows. Mm-hmm. And I made a show called Should Grandma Smoke Pot? Mm-hmm. We air it in infomercial slots on TV stations all over the country. Uh, as an infomercial producer, I can buy that time very, very cheap through a private auction process Okay. that's only open to infomercial producers. Okay. Uh, I can buy half hours mm-hmm. to run the show as cheap as 50 bucks up to 150 bucks. You can't hardly buy a minute commercial for that. Exactly, yeah. Uh, and and the Silver Tour operates on donations. When we get enough money in, we buy a schedule somewhere. Sometimes someone wants us to run, say, in a Texas city, and they'll put up 1500 or $2,000, and we'll be on every day for a month mm-hmm. and then make a heck of a lot of converts. You can reach a lot more people for a lot less money on television than you can running live shows. Right. And that's pretty much the story of the Silver Tour. I'm about to start a new book. Mm-hmm. Uh, working title is called Greed and Evil. It's an expose on uh, DARE, uh, uh, Drug Free America, right. Calvina Fay, The Semblers. The private prison industry. Oh man! The politicians that are actually taking money from those people, mm-hmm. and I've been able to trace the money trail right to the politicians who are working with them. Oh yeah! Uh, I want people to find out how our laws are made, actually written by the private prison companies. Oh yes! Encouraging longer sentences. And explain to them why the most important prisoner in any prison is a marijuana offender. Mm-hmm. Because they make the best slave workers. No, oh, of course, because they're the nonviolent offenders. Non-violent they're not going to give any money. They do their time and get out. Correct. And uh, in the private prisons and even in some of the public prisons, they do everything they can to prolong a marijuana offender sentence so that they can get the most amount of labor out of them. They say they don't force people into the factories, but in fact they do. Oh, yeah, sure. I've got 10 years' experience fighting it, working with it, uh, and, you know, I'm going to tell the story firsthand. Absolutely. How it works and who's doing what. Now, here's a, here's a question for you. Um, recently, they, they passed legislation down in Florida that, that banned um, glass um, smoking devices. What kind of impact do you think that that's going to have on on getting uh, decriminalization slash legalization done in Florida? No, we fixed that. Oh, you did? Uh, uh, yeah, we managed to get one line added to the bill that said uh, it's all right to sell that stuff if it's used for smoking tobacco. Mm-hmm. And every uh, smoke shop has a sign on the window, uh, these items are for tobacco use only. Uh, the man who pushed that bill through was a bit of a nutcase. He was a uh, crackhead, right? And he somehow got elected to the uh, the House of Representatives in the state. Mm-hmm. Strangely or not strangely, I was in Tallahassee lobbying for our medical marijuana bill. I remember that 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 bill came up in uh, in committee, mm-hmm. and I was passing by the committee room. I walked in, I managed to get time, and I turned out to be the only single person 
who spoke against that bill. Wow. But we were able to disarm the bill. Yeah, because I know that was a big issue with people that were living down in Florida, and I know that some of the guys that that I associate with were going to go down and do a um, a smoke down protest just because of of that particular bill. So you guys got a line item amendment to it, and now everything it, it's basically staying the same way that it always was. Correct? Exactly. Uh, our our bill for medical marijuana never got out of committee. It never got heard in committee because the Republican committee heads blocked it and wouldn't uh, put it on the agenda. It will go in again next year. It's a Kathy Jordan medical marijuana bill. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, you know we are doing a new petition. Mm -hmm. Uh, This time it's actually financed. And uh, I was on a conference call with the other leaders last Friday. It looks like we'll have the initial 60,000. Uh, to run the bill through the legislature. Wow. And uh, we may actually get the 700,000 signatures we need. Uh, There's some very strong people behind it, and we're working hard on it. Well, that's fantastic news. And um, I know we got to let you go here in a minute. So can you tell people where to find and support what you're doing for um, for the cannabis community? Yes, go to the silvertour.org. Okay. Uh, you'll see pictures of, you know, I took 150 people to Washington seniors yep. mm-hmm. to lobby uh, for medical marijuana and to stop the feds interfering in uh, the states that have legal medical. Right. It was the first time a group of seniors has ever been seen lobbying for marijuana. Uh, we paid their way and everything else thanks to our donors. Right. Go to silvertour.org, make a donation. Uh, go to the store there. You can find a copy of my book, Black Tuna Diaries. You, I'll sign it for you. You can get a signed copy of the movie, Square Grouper. There's some other good stuff. you got bumper stickers, Should Grandma Smoke Pot. Mm-hmm. Something there for everybody. Become a member or a donor at thesilvertour.org. Get a signed copy of my book. In Fantastic. fact, for uh, all of August, everybody who uh, sends for a signed copy of my book, which is 1995. I'm going to give him a Willie Nelson DVD from his uh, that's his Peace album. Oh, fantastic! To find. Uh, I've got a whole stack of them. Were donated to the Silver Tour, mm-hmm. uh, and courtesy of Willie, everybody who orders the books going to get uh, a DVD as well. Well, that's what it's about. People in the community from all different walks of life coming together and trying to put an end to this. Number one, the war on drugs, which we all know is just just crippled our society by increasing the police state and and adding the militarization of police and also what we talked about before utilizing the private prisons to to harness basically nonviolent offenders as slave labor so I, I i appreciate everything you're doing robert keep up the great work and um and thanks for the time this afternoon take care and thanks for having me on jake all right take care robert bye bye bye